this is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. I move from room to room, collecting this evidence of you, and yet I could not point to the muscle, to a vein or ventricle, and say, here, this is where you are. These are the parts of me you have touched, because I still discover you, again and again. From the poem Houses, written by me, K.B. Marie, and this is the true story of who killed my mother, Corey, this is the medical examiner, Dr. Champion. I'm so sorry it took me so long to get back to you. I understand that you have questions for me. Yes, I say. Yes, I do. I leap up from the couch, moving as if I'm on fire, trying to find my laptop, my notes. I've been preparing for this call for so long that now that the examiner has finally called me, I go into a blind panic. I can't get the computer unplugged. I yank it once, twice, finally pulling the cord out of the wall, and then tripping over it. I step over the scurrying dog, who is now panicking too because he doesn't understand why. We went from mid-doze to this flurry of excitement. He barks. Shh, 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 hush, I hiss. If this is a bad time, the medical examiner begins. Oh, it's a good time, I'm quick to say. I don't want her to have any reason whatsoever to hang up on me. Lord knows if she'll ever call me back. It's just that I have a list of questions for you on my computer and I'm trying to get everything open, so if you could just give me a moment, please, thank you. Of course. It's a good thing that she's patient because I type my password into the computer twice and fail before realizing the caps lock is on. But finally I get my questions document open and say, Okay, I'm ready. Can I begin? Absolutely. Okay, let's see. Under narrative summary, it says, The decedent had a history of drug use, heroin, hypertension, and mood disorder. Who told you that my mother had a history of heroin use? Hmm, I believe the brother told us that. But your report says needle tracks are not observed. Was there any evidence that she had been injecting anything prior to her death? No, she admits. There were no puncture wounds. I was very careful and looked very closely between the toes and everything that I could think of, but... I didn't find anything that looks like a puncture wound. My uncle lied to you, I say. My mother has never used heroin in her life. He was the heroin user. He did say that he thought it was his heroin that she'd gotten into, which we thought was strange. Both the detective and myself were concerned that he'd done something to her. His story simply wasn't adding up. Yes, Detective Barnes told me that he wanted to look for an air bubble or something to see if he'd injected her with an empty syringe. But when you describe the examination of the heart, you didn't make any mention of any abnormalities. So does that mean that you didn't find anything? We did an x-ray to check for air bubbles, but I didn't see anything on the screen, no. Something like that would show up. 
According to Joe, he'd taken all of her prescriptions, her Celexa, her Seroquel, anything that she would have taken, and locked it up in his safe. And that supposedly she'd broken into the safe and gotten the heroin that had killed her. But I just simply don't believe that, because if she had gotten into his safe to take heroin, I think she would have grabbed something else, her pills, or at least something that she recognized, or something that looked like a pain pill, because pills were really the only thing she was into. Did you find any other narcotics in her system? Mm, let me check. There's a beat of silence on the phone. I requested an expanded profile that included Celexa and Seroquel, and essentially everything else that we think of, but there wasn't anything else in her system. I know that my mother liked her pain pills, that was true, but I just can't believe that she would break into a safe and overlook the pills and grab heroin. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And I feel like someone in her condition, access to a safe full of different drugs, would have had at least more than one drug in her system when she died. In her condition? The examiner asks. Yeah, in the last four months of her life, she was having memory problems, so if she really was home alone with an open safe for hours, at the very least, I think she would have gone into the safe a few times and taken a few different things. It's not like she would have remembered what she was taking or how much of it she had taken. And do you know what the cause was for these memory issues? She asks me. No, it started at the end of February after she was hospitalized. Joe said that she went into the hospital because she had taken her medications wrong, the Celexa and Seroquel, and that it messed her up. When he brought her home from the hospital, he supposedly took her off everything. And what hospital was this? She asks me. I give her the hospital name that I think that she probably went to, the one closest to her house, and the approximate dates for my mother's stay. Then I move on to my next question. On the report, my mother's time of death is listed at 2.55pm, but I had already spoken to the detective by then. Is there a reason why the time of death is so late? Oh yes, that's just the official confirmation time, she says. When we go examine a body, we have to call the time of death for our report. But do you have any idea what her actual time of death was? It's very challenging to use lividity to pinpoint the exact time of death. There's the sound of papers rustling. Her body was pretty warm when we examined it, and it had been 94 degrees in the house with no air conditioning, so that would make it pretty hard to tell exactly when she had died. My heart sinks a little at this news, because it means we might not be able to determine for sure if Joe was home at the time that my mother died. He could fudge the times of his alibi if he needed to, for a situation like this. I decide to move on. Under the external examination part, there's mention of a lot of bruising. Quote, a purple bruise on her left arm, a faint blue bruise on her right forearm, a red-purple bruise on her left middle finger, and a faint purple bruise on the left side of her lower back. Yes, that's correct. It's quite a bit of bruising. Did all of this happen at the time of her death? I ask. Because if that's true, there was more of a physical altercation than Joe had led me to believe, with his, we had a fight about money, comment. No, it's very difficult to date bruises on a body. I can tell you that they were in different stages of healing, so it's unlikely that they all happened at the same time. Still, as clumsy as my mother is, some of the bruises are hard to ignore. How does one bruise their own forearm, for example, or their left lower back? The reminder that Joe was most certainly pushing her around, roughing her up at the very least, pisses me off all over again. To the examiner, I say, I'm sure it's probably the same for the scrapes on her left elbow, knee, and right ankle. Yes, unfortunately, she says. It's very hard to establish timelines for things like that. What about the hemorrhages and the parietal scalp and the left temporal scalp? What causes that? 
Well, she could have bumped her head real hard, or if she had collapsed from the overdose and hit her head on impact, that could have caused it too. Or it might have happened if he moved her body. But the fact that the scalp bled definitely means it happened before she died, I ask. Yes, that's usually true, she confirms. So if he moved her, he moved her before she died. Then I ask what I've been asking myself for months, on repeat. If my uncle can go into her bedroom, take one look at her body and know it was an overdose, how did he see her overdosing in a floor, and instead of calling an ambulance, move her to the bedroom? Surely he understood what was going on. Well, sometimes they think that a person will simply sleep it off, whatever they took. No, he knows what an overdose looks like, I tell her. He was with my aunt when she died of an overdose, and he'd been a long-time addict himself. He would have known what he was looking at. But he chose to drag her to a room, rather than call for help. Why would he do that? I don't know, she says. It's a good question. But basically, it's not clear if he roughed her up the night that she died or not. Unfortunately, no, it's not clear from the physical condition of the body alone. What about the hyoid bone? I ask. Because a broken hyoid bone is a common result of strangulation. Honestly, I think I did that during the autopsy, she says, and sounds truly apologetic about it. I try to be very careful when I remove it for examination, but it's a very fragile bone. So you don't think he strangled her? No, there were no other indications of strangulation, no bruising on the neck or hemorrhaging or anything like that. Oh, and I wanted to ask you about the clothes. It says that there were clothes piled on top of her body? Hmm, hold on just a minute. More shuffling of paper and what I imagine are the real-life photographs of the scene of her death. Yes, it looks like he just covered her legs with clothes. He just piled them on top of her legs? Yes, seems so. Isn't that a little weird? I ask. Yes, we found it to be a bit strange. I type her answers beneath the questions as I go, moving down my list as quick as I can. I don't want to take up too much of her time. You wrote in the report that an old incision with hardware is identified in the left frontal and left temporal bones, and also note hardware in the right knee. Yes, that's correct. There were two screws in her right femur near the knee. I'm pretty sure that that was from a car accident, I tell her and the hardware in her head is from where he had hit her with a glass ashtray and caved in her skull, almost killing her. But that was back in 2006. I was curious of what had happened there. I want to ask you a bit about her lungs. You wrote the pulmonary parenchyma is red to purple, exuding slight to moderate amounts of blood fluid, and anthracosis is noted. You also added under pathological diagnoses that she had mild pulmonary congestion, I know that she was a smoker, but I don't understand what the rest of it means. Are these interrelated or separate conditions? The anthracosis would be from breathing dirty air or smoking, so if your mother was a smoker, that makes sense. The drug intoxication would have caused the pulmonary congestion. More pages turn. But it's strange that she has more fluid in her left lung, because it should have been the right lung if she had been lying on her right side. Because he moved her while she was dying, I think instead of calling the damn ambulance like he should have. Aloud, I say, I just don't understand why he didn't call an ambulance instead of moving her. He was supposed to be on high alert for her collapsing and having seizures and all that. I don't understand what you mean, she says. I tell her everything Joe had told me in the months leading up to her death, about the seizure that turned her blue, stopped her breathing, about the memory problems, and the fact that she was supposedly setting pans on fire and acting erratically. I finish up by saying, 
He was responsible for her. He went down to the SSI office and signed his names onto her checks under the pretense that he was going to take care of her. Why would you leave someone home alone who is setting pans on fire? It's a very good question, she says gravely. And she had insisted to me that she hadn't been taking anything for months, not even her meds, and now she's dead from an overdose? Only one person was bringing drugs into the house, and it wasn't my mother. And now you're telling me that all that's in her system was caffeine, cigarettes, and this massive dose of fentanyl? It just doesn't make sense. Is it possible that my grandmother had been prescribed fentanyl for pain, and somehow my mom got a hold of that? Because if my grandmother had been prescribed something, and it maybe it had been in a pill form or a patch, my mom might have taken it and hidden it, not understanding what it was. But again, my mom would have had to take in a lot of it to get the 33 nanograms per milliliter reading that was found in her blood. It's impossible to know what form the fentanyl was in, if it was a pill or a powder or anything like that, but we do know that it was illicit, the medical examiner says. That compound, 4-ANBB, it's only present in illegally made fentanyl. If it was manufactured properly, it wouldn't have that. So the drugs that killed my mother were definitely brought into the house by Joe, were definitely illicit, and either given to her directly by him or left within her reach. At the very least, this is gross negligence, and he must know it. But I'm confused why he said heroin, I tell her. Is it possible that he thought it was heroin that he'd bought? I've read that heroin is often mistaken for fentanyl. I mean, one of its street names is synthetic heroin. It's possible he thought he was giving her heroin, yes. 33 nanograms per milliliter is a pretty massive dose. My voice doesn't break until I ask her the last question on my list, the one I'd most feared the answer to. Do you... do you think she suffered? No, she says. Fentanyl is given for pain. She just would have gotten very sleepy and passed out and then felt nothing at all. What if he... what if he smothered her, just put a pillow over her face and... To be honest, she wouldn't have noticed. She would have been so unconscious she wouldn't have even put up a fight if he pressed a pillow on her face or something like that. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for answering all of my questions, I tell her finally, realizing that she's been talking to me for more than an hour. But I feel tremendously grateful that she'd given me so much of her time and didn't make me feel like I was crazy or imagining the worst. I'm glad we talked. There's quite a bit here that I didn't know. I'm wondering if I should change my diagnosis. I mean, the fentanyl killed her. That, that won't change. But I don't think we realized how responsible he was for her. If that's the case, perhaps accidental isn't accurate. Either way, I'll try to get a hold of those medical records from February, and I'll follow up with the detective and let you know what I find. It's been three months since that phone call, and I haven't heard from her or the detective again. When I was 15, there were few things that I loved more than books. There was the girl I was really into, but how could she compare to Louis, Lestat, Armand, Pandora, and Akasha, Queen of the Damned? If you didn't spend the 80s and 90s reading Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you have, or if you've ever been part of a fandom, you can understand what I was feeling when I touched the glossy cover of the brand new hardback edition of The Vampire Armand. How I fawned over it, longed for it, 
until I noted the exorbitant $25 price tag and slipped it back on the shelf. It was October 1998, and I was still almost a year away from getting my first job at Burger King and having my own money. And $25 for a book, no matter how badly I yearned to read it, was way out of budget. I must have whined about this or perhaps suggested it as an early Christmas present, which is how often I got my books in those days, if the library didn't have a copy available. However it was brought to my mother's attention, I can't say. But I remember the gloriously shocking moment when my mother knocked on my bedroom door one night and slipped into the room with something behind her back. I sat up in my bed suspiciously, unsure of where this was going. It was close to Halloween, after all. I was expecting a rubber spider or a snake in my face. So imagine my surprise when she slipped into my hands the hardback I'd been longing for. Crisp with its vibrant dust jacket that I've since lost, though I still have the book itself. Whoa, I had said, accepting it. You got this for me? I thought you'd like to have it, she said wryly. Was I wrong? She pretended to reach for it, but I clutched it to my chest, and she laughed, her hand dropping. Of course I want it, I said. In fact, I was so touched that she'd gone out of her way to find and buy the book for me, that it was the right one in everything, that I was over the moon happy. But I had no illusions about our financial situation. My mother worked in a factory, and Shay screen-printed t-shirts. But it's so expensive, I'd said. It's okay, my mom said, straightening. I wanted you to have it. But if you get hungry this week, you better just shut up and read your book, she laughed. And I wondered how close to the truth this was. But before I could ask more, she leaned forward and kissed my cheeks, obviously pleased that she'd gotten the reaction she had hoped for from me. As I was already climbing into my bed, opening the book, unwilling to wait another second to begin my return to New Orleans to the sexy vampires who live there. My mom laughed from the doorway. I'll just leave you to it then. I looked up a few minutes later and caught her lingering in the door, watching me, smiling, before finally shutting it. This is the face I see, the version of my mom lingering in my mind as I close the autopsy report and file away my answered questions. And I'm left with only this, the question I'm asked most. Corey, what do you think happened? The problem with discerning the truth about what happened the night my mother died is that the only living person with her is a compulsive liar. It's hard to know which bits of information he told me and the police are true and which are fabricated. Did she have a seizure or didn't she? Did he go to work that night or not? Did he really lock up her pills for her safety, or was it a way to confuse her and muddle her mind, making it easier to manipulate and kill her? Was the safe broken by police, or not at all? Had my mother really ever been to that apartment complex? But no matter how I manipulate these details, which mixture of truth and falsehoods I arrange, it still leaves me with a spectrum of guilt, and no matter how the cards fall, Joe is responsible for my mother's death. On one end of the spectrum, my mother took a pill that she believed was a garden-variety pain pill and began overdosing while she was unsupervised. Then Joe came home, found her collapsed on the floor, saw her symptoms, her labored breathing, her unresponsiveness, her blue face, and chose to drag her to the bedroom and throw clothes on her legs instead of call an ambulance or get her medical attention. 
even though he knew what an overdose looked like, knew that overdoses could be reversed if treated, knew what was at stake. In this scenario, he chose not to help her, and that led to her death. In this version, he's guilty of involuntary manslaughter or maybe negligent homicide. On the other end of the spectrum, Joe planned her death almost as soon as my grandmother died. He stopped giving her her medication, knowing it would alter the clarity of her mind and make it easier to control her, confuse her, manipulate her. He lied about her having a seizure as a form of misdirection, so I would suspect her health was the culprit or to lead me to believe that he was an attentive brother, always looking out for her rather than planning her death. He called me hours before she died and orchestrated that last phone call because he decided that that night was the night he would finally enact his plan and wanted me to have a chance to say goodbye one last time. The story about the safe was a lie. The possible apartment parking lot drug deal is also a lie because he's the one who gave her the drugs, either rolled up in a cigarette, disguised as a headache powder, or maybe even as a pill that he got her to take by some deceptive means, by telling her, this'll make you feel good, and that when she began to overdose, he ransacked her room, taking anything valuable, including the jewelry I'd given her, and covered her body with clothes, and closed the door, maybe to avoid looking at what he'd done, or to keep the dogs off of her. Then he called me, he called the police, and he told them she'd overdosed using his heroin because he thought that that's what would show up on the autopsy, because that's what he believed he'd bought and had given her, and because he didn't think anyone could prove that she hadn't taken the heroin herself. At this end of the spectrum, Joe is guilty of first-degree murder because the act of killing her was willful and premeditated with malice aforethought. If actually convicted, he should go to prison for life. So where does he fall on this spectrum of guilt? For me, it all comes down to the phone call. I can't stop thinking about that phone call, that strange orchestration of Joe calling me for no apparent reason, which he's never done before, and asking me to speak to my mother, then her confusion mirroring my own. All of this just hours before she died? What timing. A hell of a coincidence. Unless, of course, he knew exactly what he had planned for that night. In the end, no matter where the truth lay on this spectrum, it doesn't erase Joe's responsibility or change the facts. My mother died with caffeine, cigarettes, and a massive dose of fentanyl in her system. She had told me she was clean. Joe had told me that she was clean. And yet somehow... Illicit fentanyl made it into the house and into my mother's body under Joe's watch. But who buys drugs and brings them into the house? Joe, whose story changed under pressure, who lied and said my mother had a history of heroin use and must have used heroin, though there were no track marks on her body. Joe, who had a history of violence against her, strangling her, caving in her skull already expressing disregard for her well-being in life? Joe, who moved her dying body rather than get her medical attention? It was Joe. It was Joe. It was Joe. I don't know what will happen in the future. I don't know that the criminal justice system, which has let my uncle off on over a hundred other charges, 
can be trusted to bring him to justice now. I don't know if a world which despises addicts and women, but especially poor women, can be counted on to protect one. I think most would look at her record of mental illness and say she wasn't worth it. But she is. She didn't know it. But my mother has always been worth it. And what will I do now, with the knowledge that I may never learn more about her death than what I've already outlined, that justice may very well never come? I don't know. I really don't know. But my mother wouldn't have wanted me to worry about it, or to suffer on her behalf. She would want me to move on, to find peace, not just with her death, but with the life that we had shared, with everything that had happened between us, the good and the bad. This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.